0: Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode two hundred and sixty-eight of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking with Cameron Harold about the unique highs and lows experienced by entrepreneurs. If today's podcast resonates with you and you haven't read our book, The Small Firm Roadmap yet, you can get the first chapter for free right now at lawyerist.com/slash book.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by GNGF. That's get notice, get found. TextExpander, Rankings.io, and back office Betty's. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on.
0: Given the fact that we're recording this few days before it airs, it feels weird to mention coronavirus and its implications. Yeah, who knows where we'll be next week. Yeah, who knows? Everything's changing every day. Who knows? At the same time, it would feel weird to have our podcast just never mention it. So it seems <laughs> worth mentioning it in some way. Yes. So we aren't epidemiologists. Lawyerist has no advice regarding viruses for you, but um, we have been giving a lot of thought to the kind of business management, small firm management implications of both this specific disruption and disruptions to economy in general. We mentioned it in our book that we wrote a year ago. And one of the things that we think is really important is that In addition to small firms following good practices related to whatever doctors say you should be doing, is also making sure that your law firm as a business is ready to absorb some ups and downs that come with things like this.
1: Yeah, there's a couple sides to that, right? It's like where you work, but also your financial status and strategy.
0: Yeah. And so Lawyerist as a company um, have implemented a remote-first working policy way before coronavirus was a thing, um, which gives us some flexibility in the face of this that we aren't worried about people being exposed to each other in an office space. And remote work as a Blanket policy might not be an option for all or most small law firms, but figuring out ways that it can be temporarily or occasionally implemented where work doesn't suffer and productivity doesn't suffer and people are using good habits but have the ability to show up for work without needing to come into the office are skills and tools that law firms should start thinking about right now if they haven't already.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where because we are remote first, all of the news about staying at home and maybe people should work from home, whatever, has been like a big shrug for us personally. And and I hope that that's true for a lot of law firms out there that just have that as an option. You know, one of the things, though, that we've come across along the way is that adapting to the culture of remote first is hard. And if you are always in the office and then all of a sudden have to work from home, it's probably going to interrupt your productivity even if you have the technology set up to do that. So it's it, it's worth preparing now if you haven't before, um, but figuring out how to make that work so that you can make fluid transitions back and forth.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the mistakes a lot of companies make, and I think Lawyerist made as we were transitioning into this remote work world, is thinking that, having a laptop and the internet and just having people be home is enough. And the reality is in order to learn how to communicate differently when you're not in the same place, in order to make sure that people have dedicated workspaces where they can work professionally and not be distracted by pets or kids or neighbors are all things that require some thinking. Um, And so just jumping into everyone works from home this week, if you haven't thought through some of those best practices and tools and systems can be hard. And it's interesting. I was just talking to a neighbor who works for a fortune 50 company. Um, and they have a plan that the entire company of whatever it is, 50,000 people or more, um, are all working from home tomorrow so that Hmm. the company can work out the challenges that come out from that. So that if they then need to work from home months from now, they'll know what the implications are for their giant infrastructure of IT management and Mm -hmm. management decisions and communications and things. And we've talked for years about some of the fire drill recommendations around making sure that your software is backed up and if there were a fire at your office to plan for how you would get back up online. But I think this is also an opportunity while things maybe still aren't a problem for you to run a little remote work fire drill for a day or a week and see what happens for your firm so that if you needed to then do it for a month, you would know some ways to improve that.
1: Yeah. Don't treat it like an emergency. And I'm thinking about an article that I just recently read that said they, you know, maybe the ideal situation is people only work from an office two or three days a week anyway. Um, so that they get that focused deep work time and aren't losing time to commuting and stuff. And so maybe your office should be considering a little bit more flexibility anyway. So give it a try when it's not Hopefully it isn't urgent for you yeah, so that you can give it a try, but who knows by the time this podcast airs, maybe we'll be in the midst of the, the full-blown pandemic. I yeah, don't and know. I
0: think it's maybe especially for consumer-facing practices, but for any law practices, I think one of the things to also think about is ways that you can make sure that you can still provide a great client experience right. without maybe needing to meet your clients in person and in a context where your clients may not have the same tech infrastructure that you do. And so does that mean transitioning to more phone calls for a while or having some tips and tricks for people to, for clients to effectively use their smartphones in order to do video meetings with lawyers, um, at least being prepared for some of those conversations so that you don't all of the sudden stop meeting with clients for a month. (laughs) Yeah. And you
1: want to be able to maintain your professional image, whatever that is for you, right? Like skyping with your clients or or zoom using zoom to video chat with your clients while you're sitting on your bed is probably not the image that you want to convey to people so putting some thought into your actual workspace and how you're going to do those things is going to really benefit you in the long run.
0: And then the other category of stuff that I think it's worth people thinking about ahead of time is um, cash flow and access to capital. Um, That if Mm -hmm. there are economic disruptions to your firm, either because those client meetings do fall away for a little while, or because people just aren't as productive in billing their hours if they're working from home, or some other reason related to either the viral impact or the economic impact of what's going on, is making sure that your firm has sufficient cash flow and access to capital to weather uh, an additional payroll without expected income. And we've done lots of work and have lots of free resources on Lawyerist about ways to measure those things, but making sure that you're doing a little bit of fire drill on your cash right now too. And
1: when you say access to capital, what you're talking about is sort of your cash on hand plus whatever credit you have available to you, whether that's personal loans, credit cards, lines of credit, whatever. Yeah.
0: I mean, and in an ideal scenario, the healthier your firm, the more that those reserves are actual cash on hand that you've earned so that you're right. If you needed to, you could draw from your own money, but at a minimum having access to a line of credit or worse credit cards, but something that you, you don't have to worry about not making payroll or not paying your bills. If there is a week or a month of disruption. And even if that disruption isn't that you haven't earned your money, maybe you just can't collect the money for a month. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things that are worth thinking about. You absolutely cannot look to your trust accounts for those funds. <laughs> right. So thinking about what what capital you have available to you, and if that means you're applying for a line of credit this week, this might be the time to do that.
1: In a weird coincidence, today's podcast is probably going to resonate all the more with people because it is about those ups and downs of entrepreneurship and things like weathering storms, like even coronavirus. So we'll have that conversation with Cameron Harold right after my conversation with Mark Homer from GNGF.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Homer author of Online Law Practice Strategies, and CEO of Get Notice Get Found.
1: Hey, Mark. Welcome back to the podcast. So I noticed that on GNGF.tv, uh, which is where you keep your videos and information uh, in video form about how to get more from online marketing, you were recently talking about data ownership, which is kind of maybe esoteric. Maybe a lot of lawyers haven't really thought about that. So what, um, what data do law firms have or what do their marketing agencies have that they should be caring more about?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, that was a a kind of spinoff of a, a topic we were talking about, you know, how important it is to track your data and mm-hmm. understand all your metrics and everything, right? In there, I kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, we see sometimes that clients will come to us and and they don't have, uh, access to any of their previous data, and when I talk about the data, especially in online world, um, what well, I'm talking about things like your Google Analytics. Right. right, there's so much insight you can you can gain from Google Analytics, and what we found is that a number of agencies, and and I don't know whether it's you know laziness or trying to hide behind something, but a lot of them just don't give the client. Not only do they not give them access to the Google Analytics, but in our opinion, the client should own. The Google Analytics kind of account right. and then share that with an agency, right? And it's not just Google Analytics. You've got Google Search Console for a lot of more information. You're Google My Business Insights now. If you're doing paid advertising, you've got Google ads, you've got Facebook ads, you got Bing ads. There's a whole bunch of, you know, information there that, you know, it's, it's great to have access to that data. You don't have to spend a lot of time in there as a, as a law firm, but it's good to have like the checks and balances of this is your data. If you want to, you know, maybe switch agencies or bring somebody else in for an audit, right? it's very, very important to have that
1: information. I can see how that maybe nobody even thinks about it, right? The mar- You hire a marketing agency, they build you a website, they plug it in and, and they just start a Google analytics account for you. But then if you move at some point or you want to involve somebody else and you leave that data behind, that is just a wealth of historical data that you'll never get back that has all kinds of answers to questions that you and your marketing agency might want to know the answers to.
2: That's absolutely correct. So it's, it's uh, uh, you know, not only if you move to an agency, but like, let's say you're just thinking about, hey, can can somebody else give me a second pair of eyes on this? Or maybe you bring somebody in-house, right? You get big enough or you bring maybe a marketing person in-house. That information, if you have to start from scratch and you've been paying thousands of dollars a month possibly, right, for some digital marketing work, not having that information is actually really going to hamper, you know, the, the next person who's, who's coming in there's actually when it comes to paid advertising believe it or not google actually has guidelines on this they actually say uh, an agency must be transparent they must be able to show how much money is being spent to google versus the agency fees and stuff i mean it's right in the google guidelines and you, know, you can't be a premier google agency um unless you're doing things that way and you know there's a number of agencies that i know that do it right but um i've just seen enough now where you know we we took a little side on the video to talk
1: about it right uh is the solution pretty simple it's it's um All of the things that I'm aware of, you can either um, add admins to the account, and somebody at the firm should be an admin um, on the account, and then some of them actually have an owner versus an admin. And um, you should be asking your marketing agency to transfer ownership over to somebody at the firm um, where you've got that username and password login so that you control that account. Right?
2: Exactly, exactly right. You you want to be the owner and your agency is a user because that way you can take them off if you need to quickly.
1: You want to be able to take it away from them rather than the other way around. Correct. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Wow, that's a really, really valuable concrete tip. You know, take ownership of your accounts. That makes a ton of sense. If you'd like to learn more about GNGF, get noticed, get found, or if you want to go deep on marketing, visit gngf.com slash lawyerist. Uh, There you'll find uh, online law practice strategies, which Mark mentioned that he is the author of. If you've read our book, it kind of picks up uh, and goes deep on online marketing uh, where we left off. And uh, it's definitely the kind of book that you want to read to really understand what you're up against. So that's, again, at gngf.com slash lawyerist, and you can find the link in the show notes. To look at all of GNGF's videos, you can go to gngf.tv. Mark, thanks so much for being back on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Sam.
3: Hey, Sam, I'm Cameron Harold, and I was raised as an entrepreneur. So my father and both my grandfathers all owned their own companies, and uh, they raised us to be entrepreneurs. My brother, sister, and I were all groomed to be entrepreneurs from a very young age. I actually had my first entrepreneurial company, I guess my first real company when I was 20 years old. I had 12 full-time employees. So for the my last three years in university, when I was actually studying law, I actually had a full-time company.
1: So were you always distracted by running your own business and building it?
3: Dude, I, I'm distracted by everything. I have 17 <laughs> of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder. So for me, distraction is my norm.
1: Yeah, this, the water you swim in. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. It, feel, <laughs> it
3: feels good to be distracted. So yeah, so I was groomed as an entrepreneur, um, started running my own business. And then when I graduated university, I started coaching franchisees for a house painting company and um Hmm. i'd coached 120 franchisees by the time i was 28 years old i'd actually recruited hired and trained them all in fact two of my franchisees one was elon musk's brother kimball uh, back in 1993 and another one was elon's cousin peter reeve who went on to build solar city they both worked for me in 1993 wow so I was a reference for Elon and Kimball in their first round of funding for Zip2 back in January of 95. <laughs> they only had one employee. No one had ever, ever heard of them before. Yeah. So then I started coaching these entrepreneurs. I built a couple of entrepreneurial companies. I got involved in a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization and um, met a really good friend of mine who had started a company called the Rubbish Boys. And he was in the process of turning his company from the Rubbish Boys in, into 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I joined him as his chief operating officer. I was the 14th employee in the company. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. And I had executed that growth on building that organization. I left there 13 years ago now, which is crazy. It's been 13 years. Um, And I've been coaching entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial companies globally for the last 13 years. The world's kind of littered with coaches, but I tend to coach companies in the 50 to 500 range is my zone.
1: It's kind of interesting, though, because you you were doing coaching, then you went and you know ran the business and then mm-hmm. went back to coaching, which is um, an interesting trajectory.
3: Well, and that's always how I built companies as well was by coaching employees. I've always felt mm. that the leader's job is to grow people. So coaching has really been the core of everything I've ever done. Uh, but yeah, so I've been I've been coaching people now for 13 years. I've done, I guess, about 800 paid speaking events now in 26 countries on six continents, and I've written five books.
1: Yeah, a couple of books.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, about three years ago, I started an organization called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command,
1: hmm. and uh, that's about it. That's cool. And, well, you have your own podcast as well.
3: Yeah, I've got a podcast called the Second in Command podcast. It seems like everyone's interviewing the entrepreneur and I wanted the rest of the story. So I only interview COOs.
1: That's really cool. I appreciate that. I think both of those... Uh, positions need more support and coaching most of the time, but uh, yeah, the COO is a little neglected.
3: Well, it's it's also a it's a role where the COOs tend to go to these entrepreneur events. You know, they right. they go to the you know YPO or EO or Vistage or Genius Network, all these amazing places for entrepreneurs. But they don't really fit in, mm-hmm. and they they want to get deeper into the issues, whereas the entrepreneurs tend to fly at the thirty thousand foot level. The COOs really want to get into it, and t- you know they want to talk about recruiting for three hours, whereas the entrepreneur wants to talk about it for five minutes.
1: Right. No, that's a really good point. Your most recent book is Vivid Vision, right? Am I getting that right?
3: Uh, it's very recent. Uh, my most recent one came out now a year ago, called Free PR. But yeah, Vivid Vision is quite recent. Oh, I'm
1: sorry. Yep, I had it backwards. What will people get if they if they read Free PR?
3: Free PR is all the secrets and and all of my books are written almost like a manual on how to put these systems in place in your company so they're very tactical.
1: True to being a COO.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's almost like a step-by-step <laughs> guide on how to do it. So, it's it's a step-by-step guide on how to generate free publicity for your company without hiring a PR firm. So, how to get coverage in the newspapers, magazines, bloggers, podcasters, TV, e-zines, etc. It's kind of how we landed 5,200 stories Um, in the press about 1-800-GOT-JUNK without ever using a PR firm. And I've been doing it now for 30 years. So I gave away all those secrets is how I've always been doing it.
1: Very cool. No secret here. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't read that book. Um, if it wasn't apparent from my last couple questions, because that's okay. <laughs> um, what I wanted to talk about you with you was a blog post that you wrote. Um, we were just double checking the dates. Uh, twelve years ago, a little less than twelve years ago, on Tim Ferriss's blog. Yeah. About entrepreneurial manic depression.
3: Mm, the highs and lows.
1: My guess is that all of the firm leaders listening are like, "Oh yeah," but I'd love to hear you say more about what that actually is. Put some some meat on that bone.
3: Well, and it's interesting. I think it's it's only actually felt okay for people to say that they were bipolar or were manic depressive or struggled with the highs and lows of CEOs like this entrepreneurial roller coaster. It's only really felt okay to do that maybe for the last ten years, mm-hmm. maybe less, maybe five years. Um, whereas prior to that, we kind of hid in shame or thought there was something wrong with us, mostly because. The medical community said that bipolar disorder was a disease. Right. When some of the statistics show that only three percent of the population are bipolar, and at the same time, only three percent of the population are entrepreneurs, the medical community has nicknamed bipolar disorder as the CEO disease.
1: Oh, really? I wasn't. That's, yeah, it's okay.
3: <laughs> it's really an interesting fact that most entrepreneurial CEOs are on the spectrum for bipolar disorder and attention deficit disorder, and often for Tourette's. So when you when you combine all these things, maybe it's not a disease after all, maybe we're exactly who we're supposed to be. And it's those traits that make us who we are. But the stress of owning a business magnifies bipolar to another level, because, you know, we have our house on the line, we're not telling our spouse, we haven't Mm -hmm. taken a salary for three months, we just recruited somebody away from a big firm, even though we're not sure we're going to make payroll the next week, like all of these massive stressors that can really magnify the highs and lows. So it's a really interesting space.
1: Yeah, like I own my own small firm, and I was the CEO mm. of, of this company for a while, and now I'm not. Now Aaron, my, my business partner, is. And then recently, my wife became the executive director of a small organization, and now she's going to a bigger one. And so like, I've experienced it, and then I've watched Aaron and my wife go through it as well. And I think anyone who has tried to run a business, especially a really small one, knows exactly what that's all about.
3: Right. Well, it's a space that, unfortunately, a lot of the entrepreneur's peers don't understand.
1: It's very lonely. You know,
3: if you're a teacher or a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor or, you know, you work for XYZ company, you don't understand this magnified stress. And we often hear things like, oh, yeah, I've got highs and lows, too. No, it's different. Yeah. The manic highs that most entrepreneurs go through or that crazy lunatic fringe and then the stress and depression, we we can't tell anybody, you know, you can't walk into your company and tell all your employees that you're stressed because it freaks them all out. Right. So you can you can't tell your banker and you can't tell your board and you can't tell your leadership team. Where if you're an employee at Xerox, you can walk in and tell your boss you're stressed. You can tell your employees you're stressed. You can tell your peers you're stressed. Um, the entrepreneur has to hide a lot of that because they're worried that it will affect the brand or their valuation or their ability to raise money or recruit.
1: You have to strut around with confidence at all times.
3: Yeah, you know. There's not a lot of employees that mortgage their house to pay for the other <laughs> employees to come to work. Right. Um, you know, there's not a lot of employees that will not draw a salary for three months just to be able to buy an ad campaign.
1: Or to pay the other salaries, right? I mean, like yeah. um, my employees yeah. are getting paid even if I'm not.
3: Right. So there's, you know, and, and then often employees are being told what to do, whereas the entrepreneur has to figure all that out for themselves. So the stress level can be very magnified. So the the highs and lows of CEOs are often a I think part of the DNA of the person who becomes the entrepreneur, that mania is often why we quit our job and go do this in the first place, because we're operating with some of this irrational exuberance.
1: Roller coasters are exciting.
3: Yeah. So we, and <laughs> and because you're manic, we make those very quick, impulsive decisions, right? Entrepreneurs are always called that we, you know, we shoot from the hip. We were winging it. We make it up on the, on the fly We're quick starts. Well, that's what allows us to quit our job and go do this. Whereas other people that think through stuff probably wouldn't quit their job because they might take a little more time to realize that it's going to be a tougher slog.
1: Yeah, um, in this blog post, you kind of broke the experience of being an entrepreneur up into stages, mm-hmm. sort of four or five of them. You called the first one uninformed optimism, which is like right as you're going up the hill, right?
3: Yeah, and I, I want to back up and give give everybody who's listening um, some insight on this yeah. because Tim Ferriss right now is a very well known business name, a big investor, you know, the author of the Four Hour Work Week, et cetera. Um, Tribe of Titans and uh, or Tools of Titans. He's written some great books. Got so a huge podcast. Totally. Tim and I met 13 years ago at a Warren Buffett event, and uh, he and I were both speaking at the conference. So Tim spoke about his new book, uh, The Four Hour Work Week, which I'd read about a month before, and I thought he was an egotistical maniac in his book. <laughs> I was speaking about the highs and lows of CEOs, and Tim saw me speak. And he came up afterwards in the little cocktail reception and said, hey, I love your talk about the bipolar. He goes, I'm bipolar as well. And we started talking. And I said, wait, you're Tim Ferriss from the 4-Hour Week?" And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I just, in my manic moment, said, I thought you were a total asshole in the book. <laughs> and then I'm like, whoa, I, I'm really sorry I said that. He goes, no, I totally love it. He goes, I've been told that, but can you explain why? So we started laughing about it. We stood there talking. And the next day, we ended up stuck in the airport in Omaha, this tiny little airport, trying to get on our flights, which were both delayed. And we were both on Twitter, which had just launched a few months before. And we were both trying to find friends that had private jets that we could fly with to get out because we had to go connect and get to another speaking event we were each doing. And um, we ended up sitting beside each other on a plane for four hours and became really really good friends he's since been Mm -hmm. to my home you know he's hung out at my house his brother's been to my house we went to burning man together so we became really good friends but that was how i met tim and it was in that time when we talked a lot on the plane about both of us being bipolar and the highs and lows of ceos he asked me to write um, a blog post for him about this and it was only two years later that i ever formally published that work as part of my first book double double so and i think it's still on if you look up you know Tim Ferris uh roller coaster or Tim Ferris entrepreneurial roller coaster you'll find my blog post there so it's easy, or you can link to it I guess as well
1: We will definitely link to it as well as your books yeah. the title is Harnessing Entrepreneurial Manic Depression Making the Roller Coaster Work for You so
3: There you go yep so I'll answer your question about the first stage and I want yeah. people to remember you know when you sit on a physical roller coaster at a theme park and you're starting to go up that roller coaster you're feeling energy, you're feeling enthusiasm, you're feeling excitement. You've got a rush of adrenaline. This
1: is going to be great. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, that's that uninformed optimism. You're not even sure what's coming yet. You can't see the other side, but you're filled with that excitement. That's what it feels like when you're going up that first stage of entrepreneurship. And, and by the way, the entrepreneurial roller coaster never ends. It's up and down, and up and down, up and down yes. always. Yeah. Um, so you can be up and down in the same hour, in the same day, in the same month. Or you can be up and down over a course of a year. So it's that first stage of going up, though, that you feel that uninformed, optimistic rush. And then you kind of go over the top of the roller coaster and you, you
1: looking down, <laughs>
3: you start to look over the edge and you, you first think to yourself, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. You could almost call that the oh, shit moment. But that's what I call informed pessimism. And that informed pessimism is when you go, oh, shit. This isn't going to be as easy as I thought. This is going to be tougher than we thought. This isn't so simple. I'm not quite sure how to do this. Maybe I made a mistake. And you start worrying a little bit. You get a little bit more restricted. And then as the roller coaster starts screaming down to the bottom, just before it hits the bottom, where you're pretty sure you're going to die, that's (laughs) when we call the the crisis of meaning. It's where the entrepreneur is in complete panic. Um, Maybe it's super depressed, super stressed. And where they're thinking about selling the company,
1: your burn rate is down to days.
3: Yeah, you, you can you know you've got tunnel vision, you can't see anything in front of you at all. Um, and then you either crash and burn or you come out across the bottom and up the other side. and as you come out up the other side, you hit this stage called hopeful realism. Mm-hmm. that hopeful realism or informed optimism informed yeah. optimism. Yeah. yeah, and at that at that informed optimism stage it's it's that you you know you know that you're going to be okay. So those are, are really the stages of that roller coaster.
1: Until you hit the next uphill.
3: <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. Then you keep then you keep going up and all of a sudden you're back to inform, uninformed optimism again.
1: So having introduced that, uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about what you should be doing to take advantage of your mindset during each of those stages so that you aren't just riding the roller coaster, but you're actually harnessing it. We'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from BackOffice Betty's, the only virtual receptionist company exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers unlimited calls. Betty's boutique service boasts customized call handling and virtual assistant services provided by highly trained, relentlessly friendly team members ready to help grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com slash lawyers to get a free one-week trial and use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month of service. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible and rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal Injury Lawyer SEO is all they do, so all their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. It's an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io slash Lawyerist to get started. Lawyerist podcast listeners can get 20% off an SEO discovery audit using coupon code LAWYERIST. Boost your productivity and save time typing with TextExpander. You can make your own snippets or share and manage snippets for your firm with TextExpander for teams. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. TextExpander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. TextExpander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more and get your discount.
3: So the reality is every stage of the roller coaster is just a stage. Every stage of the roller coaster is a stage that you are going to go through. And like a physical roller coaster, you can either scream and yell and hate life as you ride it or you can wave your arms in the air and scream and laugh either way you're going to ride the darn roller coaster
1: so let's talk about that so during uninformed optimism during the the ride up to the top what are the kinds of things we ought to be doing
3: yeah so if you're if you're feeling that really great rush of energy that positive enthusiasm that's when you want to talk to the media you want to hold sales rallies, you want to talk to your salespeople, you want to talk to your customers, you want to talk to your banker, your accountant, your finance people. You really want to convey the energy and the enthusiasm and the optimism to the outside world because that transfers energy.
1: And they'll feed on that, right?
3: And they'll feed off that energy, right? It's like the butterfly effect that happens. So what you don't want to do at the uninformed optimism stage is you don't want to make any buying decisions. You don't want to hire people. (laughs) You don't want to buy the next ad campaign, because what ends up happening there is you make mistakes because you're operating with this irrational exuberance.
1: So you said recruiting, like recruiting new employees was on your list is great, but don't decide whether to hire them.
3: Not hiring them. (laughs) Correct. So you want to be recruiting them and getting them into the interview process.
1: But wait till the next stage rolls around.
3: (laughs) Correct. So once you go across to the next stage, after something clicks, then all of a sudden you can start making decisions clearly you're usually making decisions with a little bit more cautious
1: because you understand what you're in for, but you're now you're a little, Yeah. yeah, it's kind
3: of like cautiously optimistic, right? Makes sense. Being cautiously optimistic, which we've heard a lot of that phrase in the last 20 years is really informed pessimism, but rephrased. Yeah. So that's the stage where you want to do budgeting. You want to do planning. You want to do hiring. You want to do, you know, purchase ad campaigns. You don't necessarily want to talk to the media, when you're at the informed pessimism,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, cause they'll be like, how's it going? Well, it's pretty good, but uh, you don't want to talk about the butts. You know, you can talk to employees, you can talk to potential employees because they'll actually buy into you because you seem real, you seem authentic. And, you know, some of that healthy skepticism that they were worried about, they go, okay, this guy's not full of shit. Mm-hmm. And then when you start careening down the, the roller coaster and you hit that crisis of meaning, it's that's the point where you need to get out of your business you, you can't sit and work
1: harder right this is the will i crash or will i fly
3: yeah so at that point like stop working you know disconnect <laughs> um you know i took 10 weeks paid vacation last year where i just took 10 weeks off and left my company to run and and i unplugged and i need to do that i don't work nights i don't work weekends ever you know i stop working at 5 30 to 6 o'clock every day and um, and I disconnect. And you need to do that to recharge, almost like plugging your phone into recharge, or it becomes very useless. Most entrepreneurs somehow try to work through that stress, and you just don't get anything done. So what I try to do is unplug yeah.
1: in those periods to recharge. You also identified some really key things to avoid doing. Um, like wallowing with other people who are depressed
3: <laughs> yeah it's it's something and it's interesting I went to a few 12 step groups over the last number of years um, some to observe some to participate in and one of the things I, I felt in these 12 step groups were people tended to be wallowing with the problem instead of like go to a running club mm. or go to a club where the people are learning how to play golf or go join a hiking club or go do kayaking or go play yoga do yoga like Go get engaged with people that are living life instead of people that are stuck in their past, and I think something really positive comes out of that. Where so now, what I do is I try to get engaged in other activities, crossing things off my bucket list, you know, going and experiencing things, and evolving and growing and feeling energized from that and meeting new people.
1: I hadn't really thought about it in, in that way, but. I mean, depression is contagious. It totally is. Mm-hmm. It's risky to be around uh, other people who you might catch more of it from, yeah,
3: and because that energy does transfer, right? So I think there's some, yeah, there maybe is some need for it, but I don't think that's the place you're going to go and migrate from. you You don't see a lot of super successful people stuck in their past. You see super successful people moving forward. And you don't see a lot of grumpy, negative people doing yoga or doing running or doing activities. The the people that are doing those things tend to be positive and, and energized. So go spend time with them and you can feed off that energy and you'll start creating some of your own.
1: Uh, You also say this is a terrible time to take bets, to make big bets, because your judgment is off.
3: (laughs) Yeah, your judgment, when you're at crisis of meaning, it's a terrible time to do anything. Right. Because you you don't really have any judgment whatsoever. What you do need to do is disconnect, get some coaching, talk to a friend, you know, gather your thoughts, go for a walk in the park, and really re-energize yourself.
1: And avoid avoid uh substances right <laughs> this is when you're vulnerable
3: yeah and it's interesting like I, I learned about this a few years ago where i went through a, an extended period of some depression and some stress i was going through a divorce and that really kind of rocked me mm-hmm. and then in addition to the normal bipolar it really was sucking some energy out of me and so i would sit down at the end of the day and have a glass of wine and then i'd have a second glass of wine that I'd, you know, I'd finish off the bottle and I'd wake up in the morning and I was tired and I was drained and it was never more than a bottle, but it was starting to become every night drinking a bottle of wine. And then I'm like, wait a second. I didn't even realize that alcohol is a depressant Right. and I'm more depressed and then I'm tired and depressed. So yeah, don't, you know, I think it's okay to have a glass of wine now that pot's illegal. It's okay. Maybe to smoke <laughs> a little bit. I, I also think you don't want to become obsessed with running. You know, yeah. you don't want to be running seven days a week. You don't want to be doing yoga seven days a week. You don't want to do something that becomes so obsessive that it takes you away from the rest of life as well. So I think it's good to be engaged in things, be engaged in hobbies, be engaged with friends, but you don't want to be obsessive compulsive about any one thing.
1: Yeah. If you crash and burn, is there anything productive to do with that? Or is that just kind of like be with family, um, <laughs> uh, lick your wounds and plan your next business.
3: I guess. Yeah. I don't really coach people who are at crash and burn. I usually get them through it or, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I mean, if you crash and burn, yeah, it's like, it's, it's over. You've sold the business. You've destroyed stuff. You've crash and burn is kind of bad, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's you, you've lost everything. My zone is pulling through that. Yeah. My zone is the, is the, the coaching and the, the peer groups and the masterminds and, you know, it's one of the reasons why I invest in joining. I'm, I'm a member of four different mastermind groups and I'm a part of the genius network. I go to war room. I'm going to the Maiden Ted conference. I go to mastermind talks. Like I'm engaged in these different mastermind groups to plug in with other entrepreneurs, learn from other entrepreneurs, feed off some of that energy and, um, and make sure that I get through, uh, you know, if I'm struggling with something, I know who to reach out to. So I think I've, I kind of have preemptive strikes in place for that yeah. stuff. And then I'm also very openly talking about my stuff now where I don't have any real filters. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. stressed, I talk about it. If I'm struggling, I talk about it. If I'm depressed, I talk about it. I don't worry about well, what somebody's going to think. Well, maybe they'll actually help me.
1: It sounds like uh, the alternative um, where you you make it through the the bottom of the hill and you start heading uphill again is um, into informed optimism is... Maybe it's it's another way of looking at your crash and burn uh, potentially, or it's what the recovery from crashing and burning can look like if you actually go that route.
3: Yeah, I think, I think again, for me, it's that I really um, have learned that everybody is struggling mm-hmm. and to try to pretend that they're not, or that I have my shit together in some weird way, the reality is that the human condition is we're all just walking each other home mm-hmm. and to try to pretend that you know, we're superhuman, maybe some of it is just saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling today.
1: But ideally, what happens is you make the sale, you get an investor, um, the business turns around, and you start, you make it through the bottom of the turn. And now, informed optimism is different from uninformed optimism. Um, what does that mean for activities you can be doing to take advantage of it?
3: Yeah, and one of the things that happens at informed optimism is people often think that they are in a good place before they're back to that good place. Mm. And it's dangerous to think that you're okay versus to know that you're okay. And I think that's one of the the stages of like, don't celebrate too early. Are
1: you actually informed in other words?
3: Yeah. Well, it's like the little engine that could, right? It's that I think I can, I think I can mm-hmm. versus I know I can, right? Like I know that I'm okay again. And I think it's very healthy to say, I know that I'm okay, but I think it's very dangerous to say, I think that I'm okay.
1: Gotcha. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And so what kind of activities make the most sense now as opposed to when you're back at the irrational optimism phase?
3: This is, I mean, if you can get there and stay at this stage, which you won't, you'll keep moving. But this is a great stage to be at, right? You're filled with good energy. You're good optimism. You've got lots of clarity. Um, You can kind of do anything in your business at this stage. Yeah. But it's being aware. So what I try to be aware of is the signals that my body are sending me. You know, is, is my do I have shortness of breath and am I talking in some manic zone? Am I moving too quickly? Am I am I making decisions rapidly? Am I just going boom, 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 am I distracted? Well, I'm manic, right? Let's slow that sucker down a little bit. Or I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I'm worried, I'm not getting out of bed in the morning. I'm on day four without shaving. Whoops. Maybe I'm hitting a little stress or
1: depression. <laughs> uh, my wife's rule for me is I have to put on uh, clean underwear and a clean shirt every day, even if I'm working from home.
3: <laughs> right. So like why, you know what, what's going with the, uh, so I think it's being aware of some of those signals, you know, how are we doing with eating? Are we getting stuff done around the house? Like, and when you start watching yourself for those signals, it helps you be aware of where you are on that, on that curve.
1: Yeah. So as we've been talking, I've realized that I started out with a clear idea of whether we were talking about the business or the entrepreneur, and I realized as we were talking that I had lost track of the distinction between are we talking about the business crashing and burning or the entrepreneur crashing and burning? Are we talking about um, is the optimism due to the bottom line or is it due to my mental state? Can you say more about the interplay between those two things? Yeah, it's really,
3: it's not necessarily due to one thing. It's just due to the fact that we go through, you know, you might land a new customer and get super excited, or you might find out that, you know, you're at a conference and somebody's hosting a dinner and that pumps you up, or you might find out that one of your customers just was successful because of your product or service and that gives you energy or, you know, another invoice just got paid and that feels good all of those things can perk you up. And because the entrepreneur tends to live in a world of optimism and rose colored glasses, those good things when they mount more good things, beget more good things, that energy, you know, I I find that if I land one client, I land three.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And then if I, if I lose one client, I lose two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and when it rains, it pours and yep, both ends. Yeah.
3: And it's kind of like if I'm looking for, checks to appear i see money coming in if i'm looking for you know bills to come in i see bills coming in so i think what happens is just trying to be aware of the good things being aware of gratitude being aware of um the positive things happening the goals that are getting six because a lot of entrepreneurs feel like we're only going to be happy when we get to the horizon Mm -hmm. the reality is you're not going to get to the horizon you can't catch up on it you can't sneak up on that horizon when it's asleep so it keeps moving so we we tend to not be happy as entrepreneurs. What I try to do instead is every time I hit a goal, I praise myself or I give myself an award for hitting that goal. Um, you know, every time I get something done, I buy myself a treat or buy myself a gift or do something for myself that feels good. Then those are little things that then perk me up. Yeah. Those, those things feed me through the stress and the depressing because nobody is, is often going to be there for the tough times.
1: Yeah. this is something I'm really bad at. I'm always looking at the less, the next hill and not patting myself on the back for getting over the current one.
3: Yeah. So what I'll do is if I set three goals for the quarter, I'll praise myself for three things that I got done this quarter. Mm -hmm. If I set a big annual goal, I'll praise myself for something I got done last year.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've noticed a lot more entrepreneurs doing sort of gratitude journaling where every morning they get up and, you know, make sure to ex- write something down or express something that they're thankful for. Maybe that, maybe that's a piece of that tool as well as to like, try to give yourself something optimistic to start your day. <laughs> it
3: totally is. One of the books, I, I co-authored a book called The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And in The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, we talk about the morning savers. And one of those six, uh letters that the second or the last s is scribing which is is writing and i use a book called the five minute journal where i write down you know my goals for the day and the gratitude and what's gone well and what you know one of my daily affirmations it's a really solid tool
1: i think hal is a uh, book to be on our podcast in in the future as well so
3: Hal's great hal and i met he and i met at a uh, genius network event and he came up to me and grabbed me and asked me if i would co-author the book and i was like i'd be thrilled to and it's, it's the number one book in his series.
1: Uh, I mean, no spoiler here. You know, most of your work are, is around coaching and, and helping people in mastermind groups. I think it's been long enough since I saw anyone give a definition of mastermind that I'd love to hear you talk about what that means to you and and what the benefit is.
3: So I think the the classic definition of the mastermind was um, came up in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Mm. Um, When I was thinking it was started by like Carnegie and Mellon and Ford back in around the 1920s, where they pulled together a group of very successful CEOs to meet and brainstorm together. So the masterminding is brainstorming and connecting with groups of people to move you all forward. So a mastermind now has become kind of synonymous with like any group of like-minded people that are trying to get better at something. Yeah. So you can mastermind about business. You could mastermind about, you know, uh, knitting if you wanted to you could mastermind <laughs> about bowling. The mastermind groups that I'm in, you know, our genius network is one. It's a very high level mastermind group that focuses on marketing and business development. Um, I'm in another one called war room. And that would be a very high level mastermind that focuses on digital marketing I go to the main TED conference, which is extraordinarily hard to even get accepted to, but I've gone for 10 years now. And that's probably the most elite other than maybe Davos. You know, TED would be one of the more elite masterminds where Bill Gates is in the audience, Al Gore and Sergey Brin and Kimball Musk are all kind of audience attendees. There's about 1500 of us per year that go to that.
1: Very cool.
3: Yeah. And I've got another one called mastermind talks. I've gone to that five years in a row. It's groups of entrepreneurs from all over the world. So I just try to plug into these groups as places that I can learn and that I'm no longer the smartest person in the room, right? It's that old saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. That's why you join those groups.
1: Well, and, and we kind of started on this, but being in charge of the company is lonely in a way that um, is really, you, you can't talk about with most people and is hard to relate um, with most people who are not in similar position. And so finding a, a group of people who are in a similar situation is Really, really essential. I mean, like I said, my wife is a fairly new ED. No, not anymore, I guess. Um, And finding a group of other executive directors of small of uh, nonprofits has been a really important thing for her, so that she isn't always alone.
3: Totally, and it goes back. You know, Ray Kroc um, had always said, "When you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting." (laughs) And I think there's something in that as well that you know we have an opportunity to continue to grow, um, and then also you know, it's hard out there that sometimes it's nice to be around like-minded people to, you know, get a bit of a boost from or get ideas from or get energized from being around.
1: There's a part of me that bristles at like-minded, so I always like to say similarly (laughs) (laughs) different-minded.
3: Exactly. That's cool.
1: Um, Cameron, thank you so much for being with us today and walking through harnessing the manic depression of entrepreneurialism. Uh, Really appreciated it.
3: Thanks, Sam. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
2: Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of community success here at Lawyerist, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me. And let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm.